So hi again, everyone. I am really excited about uh, being with you tonight because I'm going to start looking at the Eightfold Path. It's uh, a pretty basic teaching of Buddhism. It's actually what is Bhikkhu Bodhi calls it, the way to end suffering. And I find it to be uh, a foundational really foundational part of my practice and a, a, a way that I have found some stability. It's also the path to Nibbana. It's a path of uh, being in harmony with other folks in the world. It's uh, a deliberate, it's an intentional path to counteract the conditioning we have, uh, all the conditioning, all the ideas, all the the. Uh, fabrications of the mind all the stories and habits that we've developed over our lives and it's a it's a path to clarity well it's a path yeah, it's a, a path to uh understand suffering and end it and it's so important um and so each week i'm going to look at one of the factors of the eightfold path there are eight factors you probably knew that by the name of the path and uh, the first, just, just brief, brief um, background, the Eightfold Path is divided into eight factors and then three sections, actually. So the first section is the wisdom section, which is right view, right intention. And you'll hear me say right view or wise view. I, I sometimes use uh, wise or right because you hear different translators using one or uh, other of those wise or right. Um, so the first section is the, the wisdom piece. And then the second section is the ethical behavior section, which is wise speech and uh, wise action, wise livelihood, right livelihood. And then the last section is uh, samadhi or concentrate, often translated as concentration, but really collectedness of mind. Uh, I think I'm reading more and more people um, getting away from concentration and more just this, this calm collectedness of mind. And inside that one is effort and mindfulness and concentration or samadhi. So those, those are the factors. It's, a, it's not a linear path, even though it's laid out one through eight traditionally, because we can pop in anywhere. And, you know, once we get to the last factor, doesn't mean we don't start over. It's like oftentimes you see a Dharma wheel, the, um, the uh, graphic image of a Dharma wheel. And in fact, I have one on my arm, but you can't see it. It's really small. And it's a circle with eight little, uh, it's like a, almost like a, uh, a, ship's, a ship's steering wheel. And it's got eight little knobs on it. And those eight knobs or the eight spokes are the, are the factors in the wheel. And so it's it's it seems linear, but it's not linear. It's one of those um, as you move through the practice and as you practice more and get more deeply um, connected to these teachings and as you investigate more deeply your own experience, you see how the the things you become aware of are more and more and more subtle. So that's why you just don't do it once and you're done. And these different factors tend to support each other. 
So you just, they're not just standalone, and I'll, I'll talk a bit about that in, later as well. So for me, also, I have found the Eightfold Path, I, I mentioned it's foundational, and I have found this to be a real gift in my life, because a lot of times I would move through life and kind of, one of my things is being very indecisive. I'm always afraid of making the wrong decision, or I have been. Um, this is kind of my historical thing. What if I pick the wrong thing? And what the Eightfold Path has given me is kind of a direction to move in. Is it taking me away from suffering? Is it taking me towards suffering? Is it is it wrapping me up in um, something that causes harm to others, or is it something that doesn't cause harm and cultivates kindness and compassion and goodwill. So I have found these to be parameters that guide how I move through the world. And I'm so grateful for that. And, you know, you hear a lot of folks say when they come into Dharma practice and they really get into it, that they um, may seem directionless because what they thought they believed about themselves when those fixed ideas start getting chipped away, I'm this person, I'm that person, and then they maybe see that that's kind of just an old story or habit of mind. There's this sense of um, uh, being set adrift, and I find that the Eightfold Path is a, is a place to land is a real place to land. So I've, I have found that to be incredibly beneficial. So that's why it's important. And it's the path to end suffering. And um, the first factor, right view or wise view, is the forerunner of the whole path. It's this way to really um, begin to... Uh, get rid of delusion and ignorance. It's a way to uh, de ignorance. Delusion is one of the one of the um, three poisons. Um, those things that we get caught up in: greed, hatred, and ignorance or delusion. And this is a way. Right view, clarity, seeing what's actually going on, is a way to to just blow that up. And Bhikkhu Bodhi has written a great book called The Noble Eightfold Path. I have a I have a, um, a little section on my website called Resources, and in there is a thing called Bookshop, and there's a, all these books are listed in there. But he says, um, right view is the forerunner of the entire path, the guide for all the other factors. It enables us to understand our starting point, our destination, and the success, successive landmarks to pass as practice, practice advances. To attempt to engage in the practice without a foundation of right view is to risk getting lost in the futility of undirected movement. So it's like starting on a journey without a map. It's like getting on a, on a, on a ship in Miami wanting to go to London, but having, or England, but having no no map or guidance to you could who knows you'll end up in Antarctica or something because you don't know where you're going and so this right view this this beginning to understand the stories and the fabrications that have caused so much delusion in our lives is incredibly important. We may not get to it. Like, like I said, we don't do right view and checkbox and move on. It's a continual, it's a gradual 
awakening, um, an awareness that kind of grows the more and more we practice and the more we clear away. It's like, you know, you clear one thing away and then you can see something else more clearly and then you get to clear that away and then you see something else more clearly. So it's that's my story. I, I'm still seeing places where I'm stuck. I'm still seeing places where I suffer. So I just keep keep doing this. Um, so this is right view is this path out of ignorance. And this ignorance is not because we're stupid, but it's kind of a result of our conditioning where we don't see things clearly. We see things based on how we were taught, uh, the lessons we learned, the things we were taught by our family, by society, that deep, deep conditioning these biases that we have towards one thing or another. This is good and this is bad and this is what it's supposed to look like and this is what it's not supposed to look like. And there are expectations and, and desires and um, ways to keep ourselves safe. Um, and they're, um, they're uh, generally driven by finding pleasure and security. And that's, you know, if you're if you're in a place where it's insecure or there's some some stuff going on, you're going to move in the direction. It's a it's a it's a way we take care of ourselves. We develop patterns to keep ourselves OK. We develop habits to make sure we find some safety and some security. Uh, and it's driven by these reactive things, but they those habits may not be beneficial. They may have served a purpose in the moment. Because there's a there's a bias towards pleasure, a bias towards stability. Um, we we come up with ways of being in the world that serve us, but when they become entrenched, and this is the way it is, and we don't allow ourselves to, you know, see another point of view or allow another um, experience to be present, we a lot of times suffer. We suffer because we um, think it should be a certain way, and when it's not, there's there's dissatisfaction or anger. Another word for suffering, dukkha, is um, stress. So we get stressed out because it's not working out the way we want it to work out. We're dis, um, dissatisfied, disoriented, just not comfortable in our own skin somehow because we're chasing some permanent pleasure, stability, that's just not going to happen. So um, we have this sense of self that is that is based on our interaction with the environment and how to behave and how to show up and how to maximize the good and mitigate the bad. And so recognizing that that's what drives us, that's what's created these stories, cl the clarity comes when we recognize we're caught in these biases, these implicit biases or these, these ways of, of behaving, these, these habits of mind that we maybe have never questioned. Like I like to say, oh, I can't help it. I'm built that way. I used to think that certain characteristics I had. It's like, no, that's just the way I was made or I'm born that way. And then come to see that those, a lot of those have dropped away because they don't serve. And I'm not born that way. I just got deeply entrenched in habits of thinking that way or acting that way. And what the, um, what the differentiating factor is, is whether our actions and our thoughts take us towards something that's wholesome 
And ending suffering, ending stress, ending discomfort, things like renunciation, goodwill, generosity, kindness, compassion, or it gets us caught up in this greed, this craving, this desire, this aversion, this anger, this hatred, or just lost in ignorance and delusion, this unwillingness to investigate because it's a lot easier not to investigate and just hold on to what we know. Um, so we can, you know, you can have the same action. I can, I can act the same way, but, and I'll talk more about this next week. There's the intention. It's like, I'm doing it. One reason I'm doing it is because I'm manipulating and I want to get what I want or because I'm actually open-hearted and generous. You know, I can say certain things, I can do certain things. And if it's based on this, this clinging and fear then it's going to be uncomfortable. There's never going to be a satisfaction from that. But if it's based on open-heartedness and generosity and letting go, there's going to be an ease because I'm not craving something. I'm not, I don't need to have a particular result to be at ease. The, the, the wholesomeness the, the comes from in, in, within, not without. So there's a quote I have from a long time ago. I don't remember where I got it. I don't have a, I don't have a, uh, a reference on it. Um, but it says, it talks about right view. Well, it talks about right view, but it talks about wrong view. And it says, wrong view occurs when we impose our expectations onto things. Expecta uh. Expectations about how we hope things will be. Or about how we are afraid things might be. Right view occurs when we see things simply as they are. It is an open and accommodating attitude. We abandon hope and fear and take joy in a simple, straightforward approach to life. You know, we see things for what they are, not what they mean. It's like, we is this going to get me what I want? Or is this... Can I just be with this the way it is? And that's kind of what was being pointed to in the meditation. Can you just be with what's arising? Just be with what's right here. Pleasant, unpleasant, what I think it should be or not. Can we open to that? And um, inside the teaching of, of right view is the, is the teaching of karma recognizing that if we keep doing the same old things, we're going to keep getting the same old results. If we keep, you know, being led by, by greed, hatred, and delusion, we're going to keep being unhappy. We're going to keep creating suffering for ourselves and for others. But if we can let go of that and are more moving into a, a wholesome way of being, of, of, of being with a place coming from a place of goodwill, and, and generosity and kindness and compassion, we're going to move in a different direction and there's going to be different results. So understanding the impact of what we do is part of clarity and seeing, not just going, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. It's like, no, you actually have to pay attention. These things, what we do, our actions have, have results, have, have ramifications. But a key part of right view is understanding the Four Noble Truths. That is a, is a real foundational part of this, of this teaching. And I love 
I, I've, I've said it before, but I, I describe, I think of Buddhist teachings as um, Russian nesting dolls, where you have a doll and then you open it up and there's another doll and you open it up and there's another doll. And that's kind of what the teachings are like. And you'll see that in a second. But to understand the Four Noble Truths is to develop wisdom, is to develop clarity. And the first noble truth is that there is suffering. There is the being a human being. There is the, you know, birth, death, loss. Um, there is fear. There's loneliness. There's insecurity. There's grasping. This stuff happens. You know, we've got the eight worldly winds. There's pain and loss and pleasure and pain and gain and everything. And it's going to happen. It's not like if we do it right, it won't happen. It's like it happens. You know, we can't we can't predict we can't behave perfectly to mitigate anything uncomfortable happening and to recognize that that's part of it. And so there's the pain of being a human being, but there's this extra level of suffering that is caused. And this is the second noble truth of our craving a particular result. We want things to be a certain way. We want this, not that. Can it be this and not that? Um, it, I went on a retreat a few years ago. I think it was like a 10-day retreat, and I came out with one phrase. Clinging is suffering. Clinging is suffering. So whenever we hold on and not let go, our ideas, our, our, our expectations, there's going to be discomfort. And generally, this clinging is chasing pleasant. Chasing pleasant, pushing away unpleasant. Instead of, like I, like this quote says, being open. Being open to what is, whatever it is. It may be unpleasant. Can you be with the unpleasant? It may be pleasant. Can you be with that? Can you be open with goodwill towards what's right here? So seeing how you begin to create suffering for yourself. I... Um, you know, sometimes when you when we talk about the Four Noble Truths, it's an intellectual exercise. And as you spend more time in the practice, it begins to seep in and it becomes more experiential. You know, you go, OK, I understand that craving is craving is suffering. Clinging is suffering. Um, not want, not wanting reality is suffering. Stressful, unpleasant. But then you begin to recognize it in your own experience and say, oh, I was so adamant about getting my way. I ran through like a, you know, a bull in a china shop and I didn't even see the havoc I was causing because I was so focused on getting my way and recognizing that getting my way wasn't going to solve anything. You know, so beginning to recognize how this discomfort is something we cause ourselves. And I had an experience, a really profound experience of this a few weeks ago. There was a bus trip that left Los Angeles. Um, I think the people flew to Phoenix and then the bus went from Phoenix and it went across the country, took a week to go across the country and ended up in Washington, D.C. And it it's went to all these different places. It was a, a, a bus ride for voting rights. And it went to Tulsa on Juneteenth and then it went to Mobile, uh, Montgomery, Alabama and went to like 
the lynching museum down there and the Equal Justice Initiative memorials. And then it went to Memphis and then it went to North Carolina and went to all these civil icon, uh, uh, really key places in civil rights history. And ended up in Washington, D.C. They went to Mitch McConnell's house. They did a march. And I was invited to be part of it. And I couldn't go for a number of reasons. But a few friends of mine went. And I suffered over that. Because I have old, old, deep, 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 deep tendency towards jealousy. I want that. Envy, envy, envy was present with me. Um... And I got lost in the thinking, if, 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 if this hadn't happened, then I can go. If this didn't happen, then I can go. And I was just, and then I'd see them posting stuff on Facebook and I'd be like, ah, and I mean, it was really painful to see these people having this amazing time. And I, and I, and I mean, it lasted, they were gone a week. It lasted a while. It lasted since from before they went till after, um, or kind of dissipated after they got back. But I, in, in investigating it for myself, instead of just saying, you shouldn't feel this way, Mary, which is old thinking, shouldn't, and saying, okay, this is present. This discomfort, this suffering, this dukkha is here. What's going on? And I realized it was, it looked like a shiny thing that I wanted. I like shiny things in particular categories. I thought that if I went on this bus trip, then I it would mean something about how people saw me. Oh, she got to do that. This means she is this. So there was this idea of self in there, this deep idea of self. There were certain people on the trip who I really admire. And I was like, oh, I could have gotten to know them. We could have bonded. That would have meant something about me. It was all shining back on who I am and what I will then look like in the world. And and really um, seeing that, it's like, wow, this attachment is so deep and so subtle. And I was so surprised by that. I mean, it took a while, but it took a willingness to say, what is this? What's underneath this? What's underneath this? What's underneath this? And let go of the stories because I could really get into the if only if this, if that, if that. And it's just like, let go. Let go and come back. Let go and come back. And then bring some compassion. You know, that is this experiencing the, the noble truths to recognize my suffering. And to really see that it is caused by this attachment, this craving for whatever, I, however I define pleasant. And then the good news is, the third noble truth is that there is a way out. And the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path. There's that nesting doll. You open the Eightfold Path, you see the Four Noble Truths, you open the Four Noble Truths, you see the Eightfold Path. And moving into the clarity of how I had been caught up in this craving and how we get caught up in craving or stories. Um, you know, these we suffer because of these expectations or fixed ideas, attachments, aversions, resentments. Becoming, we take birth as the person who thinks they need to X, Y, or Z. I need to drive that car. I need to have that job. I need to go on that bus trip. I need people to see me in a certain way. I, this has to happen. You have to this. So we take birth as the person who thinks X, Y, or Z needs to happen. So we that's when we suffer. So when we see 
these thoughts, words, deeds um, that lead to the suffering, there's a clarity in that. We may still be stuck in it, but there's a clarity of seeing it, which is important because that kind of begins to guide us in the direction we want to go. It's like, oh, this is causing me discomfort. This is causing me suffering. And there's ways to do it. There's, there's, there's um, you know, ways we can approach this. Like my favorite, one of my favorite sayings is right now it's like this. Okay, right now it's like this. What is this? Instead of just letting the head take us along for the ride, stopping. This is where mindfulness practice comes in. Mind, right, right view is supported by right mindfulness and right effort. We have this idea and mindfulness comes in and the effort to stay present and investigate. The effort to let go of the thought that's not helpful and be present with the thought that is helpful. What is this? You know, so it's a reflective practice as well, an investigative practice. What's going on here? What's going on? Really, really, really important. Another key teaching, the other key teaching of the right view is the three characteristics, which is that life is, um, things are impermanent, nothing lasts forever, that we suffer when we are attached to these impermanent things. There is dukkha. Life is unsatisfactory when we think we're going to get um, everlasting happiness out of a particular person, place, or thing, or situation. We attach to impermanent things. And then that there's that there's not a fixed self, non-self or not-self. You know, impermanence... Um, we can see some things are impermanent. They just go like that, and other things take a little bit longer. And, you know, I was just in Mammoth Mountain uh, last week, Mammoth Lakes, which is in Central California, and it's mountains. They're 8, 9, 10, 11,000 feet, and it's stunning, and it's an incredibly rich geologic area. It's volcanic. It's plates crashing and smashing into each other. I saw one, it's, they call it the earthquake fault, but it's not a, a fault as a result of a, one particular earthquake, but it's years and years of seismic activity. And there's this giant wedge in the earth that's like um, 60 feet deep or 60 feet long and 10 feet deep. Um, it's really extraordinary, but it's, and then you see these, this, the, the, uh, the, the, the glaciers have moved through, and so some of the mountains are smooth from glaciers. So there's all this activity that has gone on in the past millions of years or hundreds of thousands or thousands of years. I look at these things and I go, wow, they're pretty permanent. But if you really look, you see how they're not. Things are shifting all the time. It's just longer than my lifespan. Sometimes if you're involved in an earthquake, it's not. But um, it's really it gives you pause if, if you can expand your awareness and go, yeah, things don't last. Things don't last. And so me thinking that something will last if we just do it right or can't we make this last forever, there's going to be unhappiness from that. And that, that dukkha, this unsatisfactoriness comes from latching on to impermanent things. Um, and then anatta, non-self, Gre Gregory Kramer wrote a book 
called the whole life path, which is really also an excellent investigation of the eightfold path. And he talks about um, this idea of not self. And he says, our self is, is formed in relation to others. We're not isolated or separate. We're all interconnected and we are conditioned beings. We don't have Mary who's fixed and never changes. I look at my life. I'm changing all the time. I just spent, I've just spent this last however many minutes telling you how I have changed because of these practices. These fixed ideas that I had dissipated because of really bringing some clarity and investigation and going, oh, I don't do that stuff anymore. Or I'm still stuck on this stuff. Or these beliefs have shifted and changed. And it's because of these interactions that we have. Um, and I really like how he talks about um, this necessity to see ourselves as interconnected beings, that we're not individual, isolated. And we live, if you live in the United States, I'm sure it spills over into our neighboring states, but um, there's this rugged individualism. You know, we pull ourselves up our, our own bootstraps and we do it all on our own. And that's so demoralizing and lonely and painful. And um, I read an article the other day that didn't have anything to do with this, but was talking about how stress isn't necessarily greater today than it has been at other times in our past, because there's been really um, awful situations throughout history. But what has happened is the ways we have traditionally held people who are suffering or in stress is more much more communally than today and now you know families have um uh their their nuclear families rather than extended families and people no longer live in the towns they were born in they move here they spend two years here they spend a year there they go to school here they get a job there blah 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 so there's this this um sometimes a lack of roots and connection and so there's no support and uh, what's really important is to recognize that we can't, um, we're not disconnected from others, but we have to form some kind of community, spiritual community. There's a phrase um, that's common in Buddhist circles called Kalyanamita, which means spiritual friends. We have companions on the path. Whatever they look like, they may be family, they may be um, community that we've built where we are, whatever they are, we have to recognize that we're interconnected. And the more we practice, the more these um, divisions dissolve and we see that we are much more alike. And the more we cultivate compassion and empathy, the more, again, the more connected we are, which is a path away from suffering. And towards um, towards uh, ease and kindness and compassion. So it's really important. So that's not self is we are don't act in a vacuum. We are impacted by everything. And so that's what this this a, a part of the, a way to um, see this teaching is. We are constantly reacting to conditions. So how you move into this practice of wise effort, I mentioned, um, you know, it's supported by mindfulness, it's supported by effort. So 
cultivating this practice of, of uh, vipassana. Vipassana means insight, which means clear seeing, which means, you know, clarity, which means wisdom, seeing things how they are and being willing to be with them. Um, being willing to, oh, um, Kramer also talks about the importance of calm and guarding the sense doors, which are, um, and I'll talk about this in another one of the factors, but watching what we ingest, either what we read or what we listen to, who we associate with, which is why Kalyanamita, spiritual friends are so important, wise, supported, loving people, not people you go to who are constantly, you know, who may be emotional vampires or always telling you what you're doing wrong, you know. Sometimes we may ha are stuck with those kind of people, but we need people to mitigate that. So really take care of ourselves and watch the negativity that we ingest or the, the, the stories that we buy into. We live in a, a wonderful consumer culture that will tell you everything you need to do. And so to, you know, question that, really take a step back from that and go, really, really? Am I going to live happily ever after if I get those shoes? I don't think so. I have wide feet. They probably won't fit. So, you know, I, I'm at a loss to begin with. So anyway, so just watching how we we move through the world, but be willing to investigate our own suffering, your own suffering, your own stress, your own discomfort and ask the question, is it what's underneath this? Is this real or is this a story? Is this real or is this a story? It becomes more and more and more subtle. And as I said, all these factors on the path take us away from suffering and towards um, towards uh, Nibbana, the, the cessation of suffering. And it gets more and more and more subtle as we go through uh, this way of uh, moving through the world. And so that's why you come around full circle again. You start with the right right view and you move through all the factors and then and then you're back at right view. But you don't necessarily always start at right view. Sometimes you, you, you see why speech is, is necessary or I need to spend some time in mindfulness or, or effort really, really coming back, really bringing myself back. So um, I think... That's all I have for right view, except that it's um, it's a great way to jump in. It's a great way to set course. So um, thank you so much for your uh, for your kind attention. Thank you for visiting Undefended Dharma. These teachings are freely offered. However, if you would like to make a donation to help support the technology that makes these podcasts possible, please visit marystancavage.org backslash support. Thank you.